Take your Bible, let's go to John 16. As you're turning there, I want to remind you that this text that we're in is not only part of a bigger series in the Gospel of John, but in particular, it is a little subset about what's often called the upper room discourse. So Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room, they're receiving Passover, Jesus is washing their feet, and this is where Jesus gives some really, really important instructions uh, as to how they're to think about the next couple days that are gonna happen to them. They have no idea that the crucifixion is coming, they have no idea that the resurrection is coming, and Jesus in this text really provides some key truths of how disciples should think about the world in which they live, in particular when that world is disorienting. You know what I mean by disorienting? I mean when the things that you hoped in or the things that you trust in or the things that you rely on are gone. So think of some moments in your life practically where you've been disoriented. For instance, maybe you woke up in a travel and you're in a hotel room and it's all dark and so you get up to try and find the bathroom or the light switch and, it's, and you don't remember that you're in a hotel room and that panicked moment of where in the world am I? Or, or maybe you were traveling somewhere and you were lost, like really, really lost without a phone kind of lost and had no idea where you were. Maybe you can think of a time that you experienced like a cross-cultural disorientation. I remember the worst sermon I ever preached was in India when I didn't know that in Indian culture, to nod your head, you go like this. And so I was preaching my guts out, and as I was preaching, Jesus is Lord, the entire crowd was going like this. And I thought they were shaking their head like this. I'm like, oh, what's going on? Thinking the translator, is he not doing a good job? Jesus is Lord, and they're like, you know, I'm like, ah! So sermon like bombed, but I just didn't know. Like, that's a good thing, right? And so it's disorienting. When I think of disorienting, though, the ultimate example for me relates to a particular ride that I went on with my sons trying to be that fun dad. It was called Twirl a Whirl a Hurl. That's what it was called, okay? So, so Twirl a Whirl. Here's, here's what this, this, this beast of a ride is. It goes in a circle, that's the twirl, and the whirl is you are stuck in a cup-like thing and there's a steering wheel in the middle of that cup, and whoever you're riding with can turn the cup while the whole thing is turning. So you're turning, and you're turning in the turning. It's the twirl, the whirl, the hurl. That's what it is right there, okay? And so my wife had Jeremiah, who was a little boy, baby at the time, so they're off to the side. I'm in it with the twins. I'm trying to be that dad. And they're like, this is awesome. It moves on its own. And so we're twirling around as they're whirling it even faster. And my wife's like right here. And every time that ride comes around, she's like, Mark, are you okay? As I'm going around, because the Apparently my, my face is getting greener and greener. She's like, you don't look really good. You know, don't throw up on the kids, you know, coming around. And so I get done and I'm telling you, man, the whole day was ruined. Like, like up was down, left was right. Nothing sounded good. Every smell like popcorn was like, Ooh. I mean, it was just, it was, it was a completely disorienting reality. Listen, what's true of twirl a whirl, what's true of culture shock, what's true of being lost is also true spiritually. You may have heard me say before that grief is not tame. Man, if you're walking through a time of sorrow or difficulty or struggle, and you're looking at your life and you're just like, I didn't, I didn't think it was gonna be like this. Like, this is hard. Or maybe you wake up and the first thought in your mind is, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Some of you may have come to church today and you're here because it's Sunday. You're not here because you wanna be here but you 
dragged yourself here, good job, and you're singing songs of stuff you know is true, but doesn't feel very true today. So what do you do with that? So this is why John 16 is so important. Because Jesus is going to help these disciples know what to do with their disorientation. You see, in just a few days, their whole world is going to blow up. And Jesus is going to give them some markers. When, when life becomes increasingly disoriented, what do you hold on to? So today, today we're going to look at two truths that Jesus identifies in this text as it relates to what it means to be a disciple when everything feels disorienting. If you're a Christian, what I'm about to share with you is really important because there's gonna be times in your life when you're gonna wonder, what in the world is God doing? There's gonna be times when it feels like stuff's blowing up around you and you need to know that number one, it's normal to feel that way and number two, the Bible speaks right into that. Secondly, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, what I'm about to explain to you is how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical fact, it becomes a personal lifeline for the disciples who believe in it. That what happened to Jesus becomes a, a, a model, a metaphor. It becomes the, the method of how disciples think about how to live in a broken world. And I hope today, if you're not a Christian, that you'll become one. It may be even that God has used the uncoupling of things that you trusted in to bring you into this room today or to hear this message. Maybe you're listening for the first time because God's now, he's, he's finally got your attention because you've had a hard look in the mirror because of sorrow and suffering and you've come to the conclusion, I can't do this. And you're right. But that doesn't mean there's no hope. Jesus is gonna give us truths to navigating a disorienting world. Two of them. Number one is this, sorrow will turn to joy and trouble will turn to triumph. So sorrow to joy, trouble to triumph. Look, look at the first one. Sorrow will turn to joy. Look at verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me. So Jesus once again tells the disciples something that they need to know but they're gonna struggle with. He's doing this over and over in this upper room discourse. He did this earlier, John 14. He identified that he was going away and gonna go prepare a place for them but at the same time, every time that he says this, he does so with a particular point in mind. He's trying to prepare the disciples for what is to come. They don't understand what's about to happen to them and Jesus is laying down propositional truth markers for them to figure their way through it and know what it means to follow him when he's gone. So this is a very concerning statement that Jesus makes. You can imagine how unsettling it would be. I mean, this is not the playbook they signed up for. The playbook is this. Jesus of Nazareth, son of God, goes into Jerusalem, unseats Caiaphas as the high priest, establishes himself as the religious leader of Israel, overthrows Rome, gets Rome out of Jerusalem, out of the nation of Israel, and sets up the new Davidic kingdom and brings God's shalom to Israel once again. That's the plan. And they signed up to be part of the people who are gonna help make that happen. Jesus dying? getting hung on a cross with a placard over his head that says 
the king of the Jews? That's not gonna work in terms of their playbook. Caiaphas, once again, has manipulated the political system in order to get his way, and Rome, for the thousandth time, has come in and shed Israelite blood and made a mockery of the people of God. That's what's gonna go down. That is, until the resurrection. And then, everything's gonna change. But you see, they don't know that now. They don't know what's gonna happen. They don't know what's taking, gonna take place. So this little phrase here, a little while, is really important. Verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So these disciples are confused. You'd be confused if you were in this moment. When this text was being read in the first service, I leaned over to my wife and I said, if I was a disciple, I'd be frustrated with Jesus all the time. Because we have the benefit of knowing what the story is, but if you're in this moment, you're a disciple going, he says a little while, what does he mean a little while? Verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, right. Because Jesus keeps saying things in a way that sometimes is hard to understand. You'll see why he's doing that in a moment. Jesus, knowing that they were concerned about this, says this, verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he, asked, he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? So Jesus kind of throws them a lifeline. You're, you're probably wondering what I mean by this little while thing. Verse 20 is really important. If you like the mark in your Bible, which I would encourage you, you, you want to underline verse 20 and you want to underline verse 33 because those are the two like signature texts that relate to the two points that I'm bringing out in this passage. He says, truly, truly. Whenever he says truly, truly, it's a marker that what's to follow is really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. All right, stop there a minute. That is so important to understand. Like, this is Discipleship 101. Jesus says that the emotional posture of the world is going one way, and the emotional posture of the disciples is going the other way. So hear me, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you can regularly expect, not always, but you can regularly expect that while you live in the world, the things that the world in general celebrates, you're gonna mourn. And the things that you celebrate, the world's gonna think is crazy. There's a lot of your friends today think you're crazy for being here. Why would you take good time on Sunday and go sit in a church and let someone talk to you about the Bible that was written thousands of years ago? And you're like, because I love the Bible. And they're like, you're crazy. It also means that if you show up at work on Monday and your friends are talking about what they did on the weekend, like, hey, went to this club, we did this and that, they start sharing all about the excitement of some sort of decadent thing that they were involved in, and they're talking about that like they're really living, this was awesome, you can expect that you could hear their excitement and you're gonna be on the other side of the world emotionally. And you need to know, you need to know that that's normal for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
You regularly are feeling the emotional isolation of being in a world that celebrates what you mourn or you're celebrating and the world is mourning. What's also interesting is that Jesus says next, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So notice that he identifies that these disciples are going to mourn. Like there's gonna be a moment in their experience, they don't know that it's coming up, but it's gonna happen where they're gonna really wonder what in the world just happened with Jesus. They're gonna, they're gonna deny him. They're gonna be scattered and they're gonna see him naked on a cross, hung in a model that would depict that he was despised by God and rejected. It would look as if Rome entirely won and they will be huddled in a room waiting for the knock on the door that they're gonna be next. They're gonna be filled with fear and anxiety. They're gonna feel like they, they believed all the wrong things. They're gonna go so deep and so dark. They're gonna go all in in terms of the sorrow and then Jesus is gonna blow the door off the tomb and everything's gonna change. They're gonna go from the deepest, darkest sorrow to the most unbelievable joy. They're gonna go from I can't believe this happened to I can't believe this happened. They're gonna go from we made a huge mistake to we're giving our life for this man because he's alive and their message will take the world by storm. What you need to know is that to be a follower of Jesus means that you deal with the depth of both, ki both kinds of emotions. That you live in a world with two irreconcilable realities. I am really sad and I am really joyful. This is really hard and yet God is good. I don't know how this is gonna work out, but somehow this is gonna work out. Here the disciples are given this instruction from Jesus that their sorrow is going to be turned to joy. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the concepts that should perhaps woo you to take an interest in the things of Christ. It means that Christians look at death, and we're just honest about death. Death is bad. I hate death. And yet the Bible tells us that we sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And the reason that we have hope is because of what happened to Jesus. You see, Christians fundamentally believe that what happened to Jesus happened to us. It's going to happen to us. That when he rose, we're going to rise from the dead as well. That if our Savior is alive, then what God promised in terms of redemption is not only true, but it's going to happen to every single person who knows the name of Christ. So Jesus wants to make this point a little more clear. He uses an illustration, one that they could relate to. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. So this is something the disciples would have been very much aware of. I'm sure every woman who's given birth is aware of this. And by the way, this is, this is pre-epidural, okay? So <laughs> just, I'm just saying, like this, this is... Not, anything. This is like you could imagine. They, they know the travails of childbirth, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born in the world. So the, the anguish is real. It's legit. But to see the baby, it eclipses the sorrow. I remember this when my wife was pregnant with the twins, and I asked her permission to share this story with you. Um, Two things I remember about that moment when she was in labor. The first was I was working so hard to like be in the zone for the Lamaze class breathing thing. Like I was there, man. I took the class. I got it, you know. So 
So I was like, come on, baby, breathe, breathe, breathe. And two memories about that. Number one, she looked at me and she said, hey, can you get that Jolly Rancher breath out of my face? <laughs> so I'd take the sour apple thing, put that away a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm helping her breathe. That was the first memory. Second one was in the midst of the deepest part of the uh, travails of childbirth. I remember her looking at me and saying, we are never doing this again. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I hope she's not serious and we're just going to wait and see and but the pain of the moment caused her to say things that quite frankly weren't going to be true by the way when you're a believer and you're suffering there are emotions that you feel that feel very true they're not going to be true five years from now they feel really true right now and yet what Jesus's point is is that there is a joy that comes that eclipses the sorrow that's why he says, verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And notice this, this is so awesome. And no one will take your joy from you. They, they will be unstoppable. People will tell them, stop saying that Jesus is alive. And they're like, he's alive. Don't preach about him, he's alive. Like I saw him. I put my fingers in his hands put my hand in his side, I saw him, I ate breakfast with him on the beach. Like, he's alive, and that will change their mission. Some of you, the reason, some of you who are Christians, the reason why you're not very aggressive with evangelism, you don't regularly share the gospel, is you're just not emotionally convinced that Jesus is alive. That's why corporate singing is so helpful because like when we're singing, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Lost person comes to the room and you'd be like, I gotta think about Jesus right now because you're so amped because of what you're singing. And the key to being a follower of Jesus who makes it all the way to the end is not having this ultimate high experience the rest of your life that you just always sort of on that upper level plane, but it means that you regularly remind yourself this is true, Jesus is alive, and you rehearse the truth of what you already believe. So the disciples here are given this instruction, this instruction that Jesus then continues. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. He's indicating that the relationship with the Father is changing. Until now you have not asked anything, in my, you have asked nothing rather in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So what is Jesus doing here? He's helping these disciples know something, he's helping you to know something today, and it's this, that through Jesus, sorrow can be turned into joy. Sometimes that happens in this lifetime. Sometimes you see the connection. You experience something really sad, and God in his kindness helps you to see how good it is in terms of God's purposes. Sometimes you get to see the resurrection after Good Friday. But there's also a lot of times where you don't get to see the fulfillment. And what Jesus is ultimately talking about is there's gonna be a day when we see him face to face. And when we see him, everything that we've walked through that's been hard will be 100% worth it. Because we will see him in his glory and we'll also know the plan of God that he was unfolding. In the meantime, what do you do? In the meantime, you rest in the assurance that sorrow will turn to joy. Second truth, trouble 
will turn to triumph. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now Jesus is not diminishing the intermediary role that he will play. He's not saying that he's not an intermediary, that he's not our high priest according to the book of Hebrews. Rather, what he's laying down here is that the relationship between the disciples and the Father is fundamentally changing. They've loved Jesus, the Father's gonna love them. The kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father, now they're gonna have with the Father, and the only reason they have that relationship with the Father is because of Jesus. He says, for the Father himself loves you. What a statement. Because you have loved me and I and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is the plan. I came, I was here, now I'm leaving. Jesus lays it out very clearly and very plainly. And his disciples are frankly a bit relieved. They say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That's all true. Yes, 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 yes. This is one of those moments when it seems like the disciples are like right in the zone, like they're nailing it. He says, they say this, this is why we believe that you came from God. In this moment, you would think that Jesus would say to them, well done. You guys got it. Finally, you understand. What does he do? Jesus says, do you now believe? What in the world? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. It's crazy. What is Jesus doing here? Why doesn't he encourage him? Why does he say, yes, guys, you got it, you nailed it. Let you know why? Because in this moment, these disciples are falling into the trap that so many of us fall into. In fact, it's the dangerous trap that every disciple could fall into in the midst of difficulty, especially the more you know, and it's this. They were falling into the trap of thinking that they now understand. They made the mistake of thinking that there was a level of self-confidence that they could trust in. And so what Jesus is doing here is helping them to see something that's really, really important for navigating a disorienting world. That the minute you think in this world, I got this, you don't got it. The minute that you think, oh, I know what to do, you don't know what to do. In fact, being a disciple of Jesus, living in a disorienting world looks like this. The more you know about Jesus, the less confidence you have in yourself. The more you know how difficult the world is and how hard it is, the less level of confidence that you have in your ability to figure it out. I mean, come on, the best parents that you know are the parents who start every conversation about parenthood like this. Like, we have no idea what we're doing. The worst parenting lecture you could ever go to is someone who gets on the stage and says this, my kids are perfect and we nailed it as parents, let me tell you what we did. Just like, hey, we're leaving right now, right? Why? Because Jesus wants these disciples to know that the greatest hindrance to their discipleship is not external, it's actually internal. 
It's their ability to think that they can make it on their own, which is why Jesus continues and he says this. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now the question is, what of those words, what's the most important couple words? It has to be not peace, that's where we tend to go, we'll have peace, that's what I want, I want peace, I want peace. But Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. What Jesus is trying to help them understand is that their connection to him, like in John 15, he's the vine, they're the branches. As they walk through sorrow and difficulty, the challenge with what sorrow and difficulty does is that it kicks out the props underneath our lives. It makes us realize, I'm not in control of my life. It makes us realize, I don't know what to do. It makes us realize, I can't do this on my own. And being a disciple of Jesus, that lesson is ground zero of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And he tells his disciples that as they navigate their way through difficulties and through sorrows, that the thing they need to watch out for more than anything else is is the problem of self-confidence. You may be here today and you're a Christian and the last couple weeks or months, maybe the last couple years have been really hard. You've been like leveled. And you may look at that and think this is a disaster. And actually, God showed you things about yourself and about him because of the leveling of your life. And I know it's been hard, friend, but the fact of the matter is you look more like Jesus today because of it, and that's the goal. And the question is whether or not we're going to mourn what's been lost or whether we're going to celebrate what's been gained. That's what suffering does. It begs the question, what do you want? Easy or you want Christ? And what Jesus is telling the disciples is that as they walk through life, there's gonna be challenges and difficulties, and yet the end of the story has already been written. Look at the last verse, verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So how do we do this? What does this look like? How do we turn trouble into triumph? How do we turn sorrow into joy? Let me give you just three words to kind of hang some truths on. The first is this, throughout the Old Testament and the New, God calls his people to rehearse what they know is true. So part of the wisdom of coming on Sunday is you rehearse things that you knew were true, but you needed to feel them in a different way. Hopefully the service today has been helpful. Hopefully my message is helping to kind of push that in at a deeper level. Let me show you this in Psalm 77. Just so you don't think this is a New Testament concept only, look at Psalm 77. It's one of my favorite lament psalms in the Bible because it's so gutsy and honest. It's so raw, and yet it points people to the foundation of their hope. So in Psalm 77, we don't have time to unpack the whole psalm. It just, it begins by the psalmist saying, in the day of my trouble, this is verse two, I seek the Lord in the night. My hand is stretched out without wearying. That's a prayer posture. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. In other words, he's praying, but it doesn't feel like his prayers are working. Ever been there? I'm singing, but as I'm singing, I'm actually struggling. I have to be upset because I know that Jesus, Jesus, he dispels all the darkness. But I got a lot of darkness that isn't dispelled. And yet you're still singing. 
And what the psalmist does here is he takes that weary heart and he rehearses what he knows is true. Even though if you look at verses 7 through 10, he asks a number of really pointed questions. Like, will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Verse 8, has his steadfast love ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? These are legitimate questions that believers, when they're sorry, when they're sorrowful, or when they are weary, they say and reflect upon. But notice what he does. So instructive. Verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Verse 12, I will ponder all your work. Verse 12, I will meditate on your mighty deeds. And then look at verse 18. Your crash, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. I love this. Yet your footprints were unseen. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the Exodus. Why is he talking about the Exodus? Because it was at the Exodus where God singularly proved that he was faithful, that he heard his people's prayers, and he came to deliver them. If you were to ask an Old Testament Israelite, tell me of the one place, the one place that you would go to that would prove that God is trustworthy, where would you go? They would take you to the Exodus over and over and over. Why? Because that was the moment when God proved he's faithful, I haven't forgotten about my people, and God delivers people. Even though there was 400 years of silence, God delivered his people. Our Exodus event is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So when your heart is filled with sorrow and you're looking at your life, you're like, I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't, I don't see any good that's coming out of this. Just remember where you are in the story. You're looking at Good Friday. You don't know about Resurrection Sunday yet. And if your heart is weary and struggling to find any kind of hope, you need to rehearse what you know is true. Namely, Jesus, I know you're alive. I know you're greater than the devil. I know that you're working all things out for my good. I know, I know, I know, I know. And you bring your heart back to those truths over and over and over and over. And you don't wait to feel them. You keep rehearsing them until you begin to feel them. That's how believers navigate a disorienting world. You rehearse. Secondly, you rely. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. There's so many passages that I could show you in the New Testament. I'm just going to give you this one uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Peter says this, humble yourselves. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It means recognize who you are, recognize who he is, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Sorrow and suffering is humbling. He then says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Notice, God loves you. He cares for you, similar as to what Jesus says in John 16. Be so reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. And after you have suffered a little while. Where did Peter get that from? He got it from John 16. He got it from what it was like to stand in the gap between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It was just a little while, and then it all made sense. There was this little season, and he's using that word to describe our lives. When the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Rehearse. Rely. Remind your heart that God is worthy to be trusted. And the final word is the word rest. So rehearse, rely, and rest. Rest in what? 
Well, Romans chapter eight tells us that God is for us, not against us. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, that means that that's a truth you can just rest your whole life on. You can know that God is for you and not against you, and that nothing will separate you from God's love. I am sure, Paul writes, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, things present nor things come, powers, height nor depth, anything else in all of creation. What's he doing there? He's identifying the different markers that create realities in life, and all of those things will not be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what that means? You can rest in the fact that God has a purpose. You may not understand it. It may not be easy, but there is a divine purpose connected to God's love for you, and one day it's going to make sense. And right now, you just have to rest your soul on the fact that that's true. Can you imagine how annoying it must be to be the devil? He, he kills the Son of God thinking he want, wins, only to then usher in salvation for anyone who would believe in him. He sends difficulties and illnesses to Christians only to help make them more like Jesus. He creates conflict to form us in the image of Christ, that God is so sovereign, he even uses the work of the devil in order to create Christ-likeness in us. That's how big your God is. That means, friends, there is nothing going on in your life, nothing that will ever happen if you're a Christian, nothing that could ever take you um, by surprise, nothing that would ever kick your legs out from underneath you that can ever separate you from the love of God. You may be disoriented beyond belief. You may be sorrowful beyond all comprehension. You may wonder, how in the world am I going to make it one more day? And here's what Jesus says. Here's how you navigate this life. Because your sorrow is going to turn to joy. Your tragedy, your trouble is going to turn into triumph. And you need no other evidence that that is true than the fact that the grave today is empty. The grave is empty. Jesus has overcome the world. And that's how disciples navigate disorienting times. One day, one grace, one truth at a time.